Father, as we look around our world today, especially as we look at our nation and we see just what a terrible state we're in and uh, just how tragic it is that we come from a nation that was founded by Puritans and pilgrims and, and uh, lots of Christians, Lord, and, and uh, many of our founding fathers were Christians. And Lord, I don't know if we've been a Christian nation, but Lord, we're certainly not now. And Lord, what we want to do today as we look at this study is to see how maybe we can have a part in, in turning this nation around. That, that I know so many people have given up hope on the United States of America, but Lord, but through this text in Genesis 25, as strange as it might seem to some of us, Lord, you can show us just what our part is in uh, changing America. Lord, it's not too late. Uh, Lord, history hasn't been made. And Lord, we know that, that you can do wonderful things when your people turn to you in a serious way. And that's what we want to do. That's what we want to be inspired to do as we look at this text today. So I ask that you Bless our study. Only the way it, only way it will be blessed, Lord, is by the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, and on the words and on our ears as we listen to what you have to say. So I just ask again for your blessing. And we thank you for uh, all the blessings we have through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. You've looked at your bulletin and you see the title of the message today. Uh, it comes in the form of a question can America be saved? And the answer to that question, I believe, is yes. Uh, do I think America will be saved? If you ask me my opinion on that, my opinion on that is probably not. Uh, but can it be saved? Yes, it can be saved. And we're going to learn that lesson from a strange place as we look at the story of Esau and Jacob uh, we can see how through our choices and our prayers, we can actually help determine the fate of this nation. We can do our part. Even if this nation falls, we can do our part. Well, let's uh, pick up where we left off last time. If you remember, Isaac and Rebekah had waited 20 years for that promised child. They had waited almost as long as Abraham had. Abraham, had waited, Abraham and Sarah had waited 25 years before Isaac was conceived. And Isaac and Rebekah had waited 20 years, and they still didn't have the promised son. And so they began, Isaac began to plead with God. And sure enough, Rebekah conceived, and she didn't conceive just one son. She conceived two sons. She conceived Esau, whose uh, name means Harry, H-A-I-R-Y, and Jacob, whose name means heel catcher or deceiver uh, or wheeler dealer, something along those lines. And both of them struggled in the womb so much that Rebecca prayed to the Lord and she said, if, if, this, if I'm okay, then why am I having such a struggle? She thought she was going to lose the child, but uh, she didn't. And the first child to be born after those two twins, after those two sons struggled, those twins struggled, uh, the first to be born was Esau. Uh, then he was followed by Jacob. Now, since Esau was born first, he was the child of a promise. And he was, Abraham lived 15 more years after Esau and Jacob were born. So I have no doubt that Isaac and especially Abraham told these boys about their inheritance. 
And they told, I'm sure they grabbed Esau and took him aside and said, Esau, you've got a wonderful inheritance as a firstborn. You're the firstborn. You're the child of promise. All these great promises that God has given to me, uh, uh, Abraham said, and then passed on to Isaac would be passed down to you. And uh, you would have think that, that more than anything else, Esau would have valued that inheritance that uh, he received from the Lord. Uh, it was a grand inheritance, uh, but Esau could care less about it. And that's what we're going to see in our study today. You know, Jacob gets, you know, gets off the hook here, but I don't think Jacob valued the inheritance too much either. He wanted the double portion that the oldest son got, but I don't think he cared about the spiritual blessings that were involved in the inheritance either. Now, later on, he would, but he didn't uh, at, at the point of the story that we come to today. And, and, why this, and why this story is so important, because in this story, we get a classic example of how choice and election and providence work together with the foreknowledge of God. And that's what we're going to look at, and then we're going to take that and apply it to our country, and we're going to apply it to our own lives as we, as we finish up later today. All right, now, uh, let's pick up in verse number 29. That's where we want to pick up, verse number 29 of chapter number 25. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. Now last week I talked about how uh, Isaac loved Esau because Esau was a man's man who, who, who uh, hunted the meat. And Rebekah loved Jacob because Jacob was a sissy who cooked the meat. So right on cue here, we got Jacob, and he's in the kitchen, and he's cooking a stew while Esau's out on a hunting trip. And Esau returns from that hunting trip, and he's tired, and he's hungry. And uh, so he says to Jacob in verse number 30, Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that red stew. Actually, it's, the word red means Edom, and that was Esau's nickname. So I believe that the reason it's called the red stew is because that was Esau's nickname, because he liked that stew so much. Jacob must have been a heck of a cook. But anyway... Uh, Esau said to Jacob, please feed me some of that red stew. Now, the stew might have been red, but it's definitely Edom stew. For I am weary. And then in verse number 31, look what happens here. Jacob's a shrewd character. He sees an opportunity here. And he's going to seize on that opportunity. So in verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. Now, Jacob knew his brother Esau well. He knew that Esau's God was his belly, that Esau was the classic Epicurean. I mean, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Kind of the the philosophy of a lot of Americans today. And so he lived to feed his flesh. Uh, He lived for today, and he could care less about his future. And so uh, Jacob catches him hungry, and uh, he sees a chance to steal his birthrights. Look at verse number 32. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. Guys, have you ever done that? You've gone to your wife you said, honey, what do we have for supper? I'm starving. How many of us have ever been starving? None of us have been starving. Look at us. You can tell we've never been starving. <laughs> Nobody starves in America. But, but uh, here he is. He's just like us. He says, man, I'm starving. I won't make another minute if I don't get something to eat. So he says, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? You know, all Esau had to do was to wait till supper 
And no doubt Jacob was cooking this stew for the family, and he would have set the table and brought out the stew, and they would have all sat down, and Esau would have gotten his stew. But he couldn't wait. He wanted that stew now. How many of us in our lives, from time to time, we're starving for something, and we're really not starving at all, but we think we've got to have it, and we've got to have it now, and we don't wait. And when we don't wait, what happens? Just like Esau, we get ourselves into trouble, and that's, that's what's going to happen uh, here. And so, he, and so Esau makes it clear that he gave little or no value to his birthright. I mean, he could care less about his birthright. He says, what is it my birthright to me? It's nothing. It's not worth more than a bowl of soup. I, I could care less about my birthright. And you know, I wonder how much we value our birthright as Christians. You know, you can examine your life, and I can examine my life, and you can figure out pretty quick how much you value your birthright. I mean, how often have we sold our birthright? Maybe for a bottle of booze or for a, a, an immoral affair or for the opportunity to slander somebody we don't really like. Or, or we go to some R-rated movie or it doesn't have to be R-rated anymore, a PG movie where they blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ and we pay to hear that stuff. And, and none of those things will, will, will cause us to lose our salvation. But but when we do those things, we're dragging our birthright through the mud. We're profaning our birthright just like Esau did. And, and, and look, Jacob profaned his birthright too. I mean, by, by, the, by what he's doing to his brother. I mean, here he is, he sees his brother is weary and he's tired. And so for personal gain, he sets out to steal his birthright. And that wasn't right either. And that's why, you know, he doesn't. He, he, it fits his name perfectly. He's, he's the hill catcher, he's the deceiver, he's the wheeler dealer, and he's going to try to steal his brother's birthright. That's exactly what he's going to do. Now look at verse number 33. Then Jacob said, swear to me, if you want this stew right now, then swear to me this day, this very day. We're going to write it in sand so uh, that you're going to give me, my, give me your birthright. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. But now I'm going to tell you something. Jacob better look out because a man like Esau, when he gives you his word, you can't count on him, on, on, on him uh, being true to his word. When, Esau, when, when Esau decided he wanted that birthright back, he was going to take it back because he was bigger and he was stronger than Jacob. And uh, uh, if he had to lie to his father and say, I didn't sell my birthright, he was going to do it. So, so really him swearing that he would give it to Jacob really didn't, didn't mean much. Uh, later on, we're going to see Jacob's going to actually deceive with the, with the help of his mother. He's going to deceive Isaac and he's going to get the birthright. But what's going to happen? Esau's going to swear I'm going to kill him. But, you know, I'm going to kill him and I'm going to get my birthright back. And so, so uh, Esau's not true to his word here at all. And then we finish up the text today on, in verse number. Don't get excited. We're not leaving anytime soon. But we... We finish up the text today in verse number 34. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank and he arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, you look at these five verses that we've looked at today. And it seems to be a pretty trivial event. 
two sons way out in the middle of nowhere, uh, eating. Uh, 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 Jacob made this lentil stew, and he, and Esau sold this birthright. And you, you almost got to say, so what? But, but history's being made right here. Because that birthright, birthright was very significant. Because whoever held that birthright was going was to bring forth the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel, who would bring forth the Messiah. So there's, it, it's a very important event that's taking place right here. Now, let me ask you a question as we, as we go on. Could Esau have been the father of those 12 tribes that became Israel if he had not despised his birthright? Think about that a minute. Could he have actually been the heir of the promise? Could he have actually uh, uh, birthed those? Tw- I mean, he couldn't have birthed them himself, but him and his wife could have birthed the 12 tribes of Israel, could they have come through him? And the Messiah then come through Esau. And we go over to Matthew, and we don't see Jacob in the genealogy. We see Esau in the genealogy. Was that possible? Was that possible? I mean, that always raises the question, was Esau ever saved? You know, I don't think Esau was saved. I don't, I don't, think, he, I don't think anywhere in the text it, it, it indicates that he was saved. But, if, but he could have been saved. I mean, that's the question we want to ask. Could he have been saved? The answer to that question is, is yes. He could have been saved if he had coveted that birthright. Because if he had coveted that birthright and put value on that birthright, that would have meant he put value on his relationship with God. And so he would have inherited the promises, and along with those promises, he would have inherited eternal life. Now, a lot of people would argue against that. They would say, you know, Esau didn't have a chance. Esau's fate was set before the foundation of the world. And, and uh, you know, the, you look at this text and it seems to indicate that. Because you go back to verse number 23 and before Esau was even born, listen to what the Lord says to Rebekah. Before these twins are even born, he gives her this great prophecy that we looked at last week. Go back to verse 23. It says here, two nations, and what two nations are those? The Edomites and the Israelites are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people, the Israelites, shall be stronger than the other, the Edomites. And then here's the prophecy. And the older Esau shall serve the younger Jacob. So God is saying that the heir to this promise is not Esau. The heir to this promise is Jacob. So it seems like God has already made up his mind before these twins were even born. And so there was no way Esau could have inherited the promise. That's called what we call election. That's what we call predestination. But he chose Jacob. He elected Jacob. Why? Why did he elect Jacob and not Esau? Esau was the firstborn. And normally the, the, the birthright went to the firstborn. Why did God do that? Let me tell you why. Because he knew that Esau would despise his birthright. See, that's called foreknowledge. And let me explain to you. I can't explain to you, but let me try to explain to you what foreknowledge is. And let me... 
let me explain it like this. God is not in time. I mean, we can't relate to that. It's really hard to relate to that. But God is not in time. He lives in the ever-present now, where there is no future and there is no past. And so from his point, point, he can see the end from the beginning. Chuck Smith has a great, had a great analogy that he used to uh, use to, to explain the foreknowledge of God and the election of God. He, he used the Rose Bowl parade. And he said it was like a a man standing in a tower, a high tower, looking down on the entire parade. And he could see the beginning of the parade, and he could see the end of the parade. Now, if you were sitting down in the stands on the ground, all you could see would be the floats that were coming by, the bands that were coming by. You couldn't see the whole parade. So you could see, so that man in the tower could see the beginning and the end. All you could see was what was happening right before you. That's how the foreknowledge of God works. God sees the future. For God, the future has already happened. He lives in the ever-present now. Now, that's as close to explaining it as I I can get to because we have finite minds. Some of us have really finite minds, more finite than others. But let's put it like this in this case. He knew before he made the world. He could see the end. He knew that Esau would never come to a point where Esau would choose to value God more than he valued his belly. He knew that, no matter what God did. So that brings us, that brings us to election and predestination. So he predestined and he elected Jacob because he knew in his foreknowledge that he could take Jacob and he could mold Jacob into Israel, who was a prince with God. See, that's why we get the postlude to this story over in Romans chapter 9. It says, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. God didn't, God didn't hate Esau when he was born. God actually knew in eternity past that Esau was going to turn out bad. He knew that. But, but he gave Esau every chance to do the right thing. Esau made his own history. God didn't make his history. God knew his history, but God didn't make his history. So Jacob, he loved, which means he elected and predestined Jacob because he knew in his foreknowledge that one day Jacob would value that inheritance. He would value it, value it more for just its monetary reasons. He would value it greatly for its spiritual reasons. You just wait till we get to the end of Genesis. And you listen to those great prophecies that Jacob makes over those 12 rascal sons he has. I mean, he, he, he loved the Lord at that point. God knew he could bring him to that point. He knew that no matter what he did in Esau's life, Esau would never come to that point. Esau only cared about his belly. That's all he cared about. He cared about today. He cared about the now. He cared about taking care of his flesh. Typical, again, I say a typical Epicurean, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. But he knew he could get something out of Jacob. One day he could mold Jacob into the man he wanted him to be. Now, Jacob wasn't that at this point. Some people read this text totally wrong. They say, oh, Jacob valued that birthright and was trying to get it. No, Jacob wanted that double portion. Jacob was a scoundrel. You know, when he has his first encounter with God, you know what he says to God? He says, God, if you'll give me all these great promises, I'll let you be my God. That's what kind of scoundrel this guy is. 
God's going to make him his God. He's going to wrestle with God, and he's going to, you got to give the guy credit. He has a great relationship with the Lord, and it develops over time until he becomes Israel. He becomes this prince with God. So, here's Jacob, and Jacob is elected, and Jacob is loved by God. And God, in his foreknowledge, knew how Esau was going to turn out, and that's why he gave that prophecy to Rebekah. Now, how does that apply to us? Everyone who's ever lived on this earth, has Esau included, the worst person you could think of, Hitler himself, they, every one of us, have been given a birthright. And what's that birthright? If we will come to the light, if we will reject darkness and come to the light, we can be saved and live forever with Christ in eternal bliss. Everybody who's ever walked this earth has that birthright. I mean, you can be living out in the darkest jungle in the, in, in, in the darkest continent on this earth. And you can be in the darkest place. But the sun comes out in the morning. And you look at that sun and it's, it's round. And then you see the moon at night and it's round. And you see all those stars. And you look at your body and you, 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 as, as Paul says in Romans, we're without excuse. We know there's a God. You have to be a fool in your heart to say there's no God. And you can deny it all you want, but we know that there's a God. And so if you're out there and you're out in the jungle and you see the sun and you say, wow, look at that. Look at the light that emanates. That had to be created. Look at my eyes. Look at my hands. Look at, look at all of this. Look at how, this, how I can get this machine to operate. There has to be a creator. Now, if you'll just take that step and you don't even know who the creator is and you say, I'm going to serve my creator because obviously the creator is the master and, and I'm the creation. And if you come to that point and you come to that light, you're going to get more light. And I don't care who you are or where you are. God will get the message of the gospel to you. Let me tell you what. When I got saved, I was out by myself out in the desert. And that's how I got saved. If God saved me, he'd save anybody that's willing to come to the light. And to, to, to make Christ our king instead of our belly our king. Most People on this earth, just about everyone who's, who's ever been born, has sold their birthright for something. They've sold it for something. You know, Adam and Eve sold their birthright for a piece of fruit. Uh, Esau sold it, we saw just then, for a bowl of soup. Judas. Judas sold his birthright. He, what a privileged man. He sold his birthright for 30 pieces of of silver. Well, wait a minute. You know, the, we were told about Judas in the, that Judas was going to betray Christ in the Psalms. We were told about that. Jesus called him the son of perdition. I mean, I mean, his fate seemed to be set. His fate was not set. God in his foreknowledge knew how Judas was going to turn out and what he was going to do, but his fate was not set. You remember when Jesus came into the garden and Judas betrayed him? You remember what Jesus did? He, he kissed him and he said, friend, friend. Why do you do this? What are you doing? What are you thinking about? That you would betray 
the Son of God. You've seen all of these miracles. You've been with me. I mean, he didn't say all of this, but, but that's what he was implying. You, you, you've seen me in, as the Messiah, and you're rejecting me, and you're betraying me. How can you do this? He gave him a choice right up to the very end. And Judas was a hard-hearted man because he, was a, because he chose to be a hard-hearted man. And when you choose to be hard-hearted, God will help, help you harden your heart. And he died. I mean, he killed himself, and he died, and he never repented. And he was the son of perdition. God didn't make him the son of perdition. He chose to be the son of perdition. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Pastor. I've heard you say that our names, if we're saved, have been written in the Lamb's book before the foundation of the world. That's true. But but that's because God knows in his foreknowledge that by his providence that one day we will come to him uh, he knows that even before we're born. What's the providence of God? The providence of God is God's working through our choices to bring about his will. And, and, and he, he's going to work as much as he possibly can in your life and my life to bring us to a point where we'll say uncle and we'll come to Jesus Christ. And if you'll never say uncle, if you'll never give up your flesh, you'll never give up your rights and you want to be on your throne and you won't abdicate that throne... God knows that, and God won't work in your life. Man, I see people, I, don't, I see people God's not working in their life, and they don't care. Boy, I care. I feel sorry for them. I mean, they're heading down, they're on the road to perdition. They're on the road to hell. I mean, you can choose to go to hell if you want to go to hell, or you can come to the light and come to Jesus Christ. See, we live here on earth. And we live in time. And history for us has not yet been made. Do you get that? These people in the predestination that think, man, every move you make now is God moving you. That's, God will move you in his providence, don't get me wrong. But your history has not yet been set. God knows how you're going to turn out in his foreknowledge. But your fate has not been set. We can choose to serve the gods of this world and we can choose to make our bellies our gods and, uh, uh, or, or we can make Jesus our God and we can come to him and he'll save us. He'll save us. Esau's fate wasn't set until he died. Now, he lost his, his birthright, but he could have been saved. But it ended up, and we see that in Romans after he dies, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. It's really sad that the vast majority of the people in this world have rejected the light. They've rejected Jesus Christ. And many of them call themselves Christians, while all along they're profaning their birthright. Listen to what the author of Hebrews, when he gives this warning, gives this warning to people who call themselves Christians who aren't Christians. He gives these people really to anybody that'll listen. Listen to this warning from Hebrews 12. He says, looking careful lest anyone, that, what's anyone mean in the Greek? Anyone, anyone who's ever lived, falls short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. Here's the important part, verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person 
like Esau, who for a morsel of food sold his birthright. There's a lot of people in the United States of America who have sold their birthright. They've sold it. I mean, I think every one of us need to ask ourselves, do we value the birthright that we've been given by God? Or do we live for the things of this wicked world? Do we live for our flesh? Now, you can say, I value my birthright. But really, the way you determine whether or not you value your birthright is how you live. You're either living for God or you're living for this world. You're either heading toward heaven or you're heading towards hell. You know. If you're living for God, you know, if you're living for your flesh, if you're living for your flesh, you don't value your birthright. And, and, and in doing so, we despise the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. And if we've done that, we've fallen short of the grace of God. The good news. Here's the good news. Our faith, if we're still in time, how many of y'all are still in time? If you tell me you're not, you're way out there somewhere. (laughs) If you're still in time, your fate has not been set. It has, I don't let anybody tell you otherwise. It has not been set. You still have time to choose to truly follow Jesus Christ. Through your prayers and your choice, you can make him your God and king. And when you make him your God and king, then you will be sealed with the Holy Spirit. You know what happens when you're sealed with the Holy Spirit? You understand that you were elected by him before the foundation of the world to be his child. But you still have a choice. If you you don't feel elected yet, you can choose to get elected. Because if you choose Christ, then you're going to find out you were elected before the foundation of the world. Now, as we finish up here today, I want to ask that question again, based upon what we've looked at here, based upon this discussion of the election and foreknowledge and providence of God and the choice of mankind. Can America be saved? Can America be saved? What's the answer to that? You know, I... I, I have to say yes. There is hope for America. You know, that's what bothers me so much about these prophecy gurus who say, you know, they've thrown in the towel and they say there's all hope is lost for America and uh, you better hunker down and get ready for the rapture because it's coming any moment. Hey, I hope the rapture comes any moment. And I believe it might come any moment. I believe we, we might be judged at any moment. And I believe that... You know, you look at the, the clouds in the sky and you ought to be able to read the weather, Jesus said. And you can look at the clouds in, 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 in our society and you can look at the clouds blowing in the world and it looks like we're getting really close. But even then, you know, the disciples, after, when Jesus ascended up to heaven and they saw him go up to heaven, remember what the angel said? He's going to come back in the same way he went up. And you know what? Their hearts soared. Oh, man, any day he'll come back. And we'll just go sit and go up to the upper room and we'll wait for him to get back. And what were they told to do? No, they were told to tarry until the Spirit came upon them and then to do the work of God until God called you 
up to heaven. Or to God, God came back and brought you up to heaven. Friends, God has a job for every one of us in this room in his kingdom. He has a calling for every single one of us. He wants us to be about his business. I don't care if, it, if it's next week. He wants to be working for his kingdom until next week. He wants us to be praying for things of his kingdom until next week. He wants us to, 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 to be busy for the kingdom of God. And if America is lost, if it's gone, you know, we've had a lot to do with it being lost. Because we haven't done our part. And I'm not trying to put you on some kind of guilt trip. I'm trying to exhort you to, and exhort myself to want to do my part until Christ returns. That's what we want to, that's what we want to be doing when, when he returns. We want to be uh, doing our part. Now, what's our part? Well, first of all, our part's to make godly choices. We live in a wicked world, and it's getting harder and harder and harder to make godly choices. Paul lived in a wicked world, and listen to what he said in Titus chapter 2. He says, we are to forsake ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly in in this present age so that we don't despise our birthright. You live any other way, you despise your birthright. You can say whatever you want, but you don't care a thing about your birthright if you don't live righteously and godly. In this present age, soberly, that means watching and waiting for the Lord, serving the Lord, forsaking ungodliness and worldly lust. That's what it means to value your, your, uh, your inheritance. And then we're to seriously pray. We're to be serious in our prayers. I mean, we talked about it last week. We, t- we should have prayers that prevail. We should be asking God, Lord, look at our country. Look how bad a condition we are in the United States of America. Lord, please send revival to the United States of America. And then we got to believe that he'll do it. Your faith is nothing. I mean, your prayers are nothing without faith. You've got to believe that God can and will do that. I believe he can and he will do it. Well, well, God won't do that. Some people say he's already set a time and, and we can kind of look at things the way they're happening in the world right now and uh, uh, he's already set a time when this nation's going to be judged. No, he hasn't. He knows the time, but he hasn't set the time. He knows when this nation's going to be destroyed, if it's going to be destroyed, but he hasn't set that time. He's seen that time because he lives in the ever-present now, but we don't live in the ever-present now. From our standpoint, the history of the United States is yet to be written, the last part of the history of the United States. I don't even want to say the last half because I don't know how much time we have. It might be the last year. It might be the last century. It might be the last 10 centuries. We don't know. But it hasn't been written yet, so there is still hope. Look at how God dealt with Israel. I mean, way back in Deuteronomy, when they were about to cross over to the promised land. You remember Moses. Moses made these prophecies. And he said, one day you guys are going to become very wicked. Your God's going to become your belly. And I'm paraphrasing greatly here. But, but you're going you're to turn to idols and you're going to forsake the true and living God. And you're going to be judged. You're going to be judged by the Babylonians. You're going to be judged by the Assyrians. And eventually you're going to be judged by Rome. You're going to fall. You're going to fall. But why, did, why could Moses prophesy that? 
Because God had already seen their fall. He knew exactly when they were going to fall. But over and over and over again, throughout the Old Testament, once Israel becomes a nation, God is encouraging them not to fall, to turn from idols, to turn from their wicked ways. Why is he doing that? Because their history had not yet been written in time. And God was encouraging them to do the right thing, to change their faith. And one of those places where he, where, he, where he encourages them to try to change their fate is in Solomon when he prayed when the first temple was completed in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 14. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that one day that temple was going to be destroyed. And here's what he said. Here's what he prayed. Actually, he's speaking the Lord's words here. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, And turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. And I will heal their land. Could we take that promise here in the United States. And apply it to the situation that we're in right now. And I've heard some people say you can't. Because that promise was given to Israel. That was not given to the United States of America. Hey if you're going to use that as your hermeneutic then you might as well throw away the whole Old Testament because the whole Old Testament was written to Israel. It wasn't written to you and I. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that that these things were given to us in the Old Testament as examples for us as, as to how we should live and how we should pray. And so I believe that that prayer applies to us. If my people who are called by my name, who's called by his name? Christians are called by the name of Christ. Christ. That's who we are. We're Christians. If those people who are called by my name will humble themselves and they will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. What's it mean to humble ourselves? We talked about that last week. That's one of the criteria. If you want your prayers to prevail, then you've got to humble yourself. And what's it mean to humble yourself? You come to a point where you know that you can't fix your situation. Only God can fix what ails you. Listen to me. The Republicans know more than the Democrats can fix the mess the United States of America is in today. There is no political party. Now, God might use one of those parties to fix it. But it's going to take a supernatural move of God to heal this land. I can tell you that right now. and We better come to that point. As, as the church, we better come to that point if we want to see revival of this land. And I think the most important process that we've got to engage in is to seek the face of the Lord in prayer. To seek his face. To get serious about our prayers. I mean, when you go to your closet and you seek in the face of the Lord, we spend so much of our time seek, with our faces stuck in a TV or in a book or in a movie or something like that. And we're not seeking the face of the Lord. We're seeking all the vanities of this earth. We're, we're trying to, to, to quench our thirst from broken cisterns that won't quench our thirst. And we're, and we're not turning our attention to the Lord. And uh, uh, if, if we stay that way, with our heads stuck in the sand, uh, and or we've given up on this nation, shame on us. Shame on us. And let me say this. If you aren't worried about the United States of America for, for your own self, you know, I, I turned 70 years old this week. I mean, I don't have to worry about this too much longer. 
But I, I have sons and daughter-in-laws and grandchildren. And I worry about the world that they're going to grow up in. This country is going to be just like Venezuela or Hong, or, or Hong Kong or, or uh, Russia or something like that if God doesn't move or if we aren't destroyed first. I mean, you got, you, it's time we wake up, if not for our sake, for our children's sake, for our grandchildren's sake. And here's the one that really, really, really involves our choice. He says we're to humble ourselves, we're to pray and seek God's face, and we're to turn from our wicked ways. Turn from our wicked ways. Listen, you're not going to have any power in your prayer when you're living in sin. And we can't stop the evil that's permeating our society if we're participating in it. If we're enabling it to exist. You look at all the things that are wicked in this world that would just dry up and die if Christians wouldn't support them. Think of the movies that would never be produced if we didn't go out in groves to see those movies. And I'm, you know, I'm not here to say movies you know, are, are bad, but most of them are pretty bad. I mean, if we were to live holy lives, really holy lives, set apart to God, we could change This nation, it still can be changed. Good things could happen. It could be a great place for our kids and grandkids to grow up in. Is that possible? All things are possible with God. Do I believe that's going to happen? You want my opinion? No. And the reason I think it's not going to happen because the church is not going to give up their belly. They're going to profane, we're going to continue to profane our birthright until we're wiped out, just like Israel did. But you and I can at least do our part until then. And maybe if we're praying seriously for revival, and if we've turned from our wicked ways and we've humbled ourselves, then maybe God will move on our behalf. And he'll pour out his spirit on this lost and dying country. And we'll see some change. But it's not going to happen if we don't get serious about it. And you could take all this and you could put it on a personal level too. You know, a lot of Christians that I, I, I deal with are fatalists. They're really fatalists. I, mean, I mean, it's all set. It's all predestined. You know, I can't do anything about it, so I'm just going to wait and die. I'm going to enjoy myself, and then one day I'll die. That's really a fatalistic approach to life. The history of your life from this very moment on has not been set. It has not been set. If you're not saved, you still can get saved. If you are a born-again born Christian, through your good choices and prevailing prayer, 
you can show that you value your birthright and you can change the history of your life. You can do that. You can, you can, you can say, you know, I'm gonna, it's your choice. God's not going to make that choice for you. We've got to make that choice ourselves. And, and, and we can change it to where our lives are really good. Our lives have purpose. Our lives have value. Does that mean we can change the will of God for our lives? You can't change the will of God. God's going to get his will done one way or the other. You can't change the will of God. You can change where your destiny is, but you you can't change. God has a will for your life. He has a really good will for your life, by the way. He says, I have good plans for you, not evil plans. Plans to prosper you, to give you hope, and to give you a future is what the Lord says. That's what, that's what the Lord wants for your life. That's his will. And, and Jesus put it like this in John 14. He says, because I live, you will live, and you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And if Christ is in you, and you value that birthright of having Christ in you, you're going to know the will of God. You're, and you're going to want the will of God for your life. And that's why John said in 1 John 5, 14, that, if any, that anything you ask according to his will, it will be given to you. You know, your prayer's getting answered. Well, you're not probably in the will of God. You probably profane your inheritance. I mean, get serious about your inheritance. Get serious and value that birthright and realize that Christ is in you and seek his will. And when you find his will... From that point on, anything you ask, he says, I will give you anything. And those answered prayers will change your life for the good. I don't care where your life is at this point. Your life can be good. It can be a valuable life. It can be a life with purpose. You can change your history from this moment on. If you make the right choices and you prevail in prayer. So don't be like Esau. And live your life for your belly. And profane your inheritance. Devalue your life for a bowl of stew. And miss out on all the great blessings God has for you. You want a blessed life? It's your choice. You can determine your own history. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the great hope you give us. Lord, even though you know how every one of us are going to turn out, we don't know, Lord. And you want every one of us to turn out good. So all we, our part in that, Lord, you've shown us here is to make the right choices to humble ourselves, or to seek your face and to turn from our wicked ways. And in doing so, Lord, to give value, great value, to the great inheritance that you've given us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we of all people, the church, should value that inheritance. We shouldn't be dragging it into the mud, Lord. It should be the most valuable thing we possess. Lord, we just thank you for the life we have through Jesus Christ. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.